Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Caitlin Liebert, Head of Sustainability at Chipotle. Now the story starts in 2007, when Caitlin initially joined the company as a marketing strategist. In this unique role, Caitlin was the liaison between the community, the farms, and the organization at large. But the story takes an interesting turn when the company hosts a new opportunity, Head of Sustainability. In the episode, Caitlin talks about creating the sustainability department at one of the world's most beloved food brands, implementing the company's sustainability vision, programs, and strategies across the company's footprint, the different types of innovations she's seeing in the industry and beyond, and much, much more. This is one of our most exciting conversations yet, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Caitlin Lieber, Head of Sustainability at Chipotle. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a treat to be here. Caitlin, I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. I'm so happy we're able to make it happen. When I was looking at your LinkedIn, I saw a really interesting chapter in your Chipotle story. Sure. So around 2011, you started off in marketing. And then the next chapter is head of sustainability at Chipotle. So my question for you is, at the time, what inspired that change? What was your why now to take on this task and this opportunity at Chipotle? Sure. That's such a great question. And I love that you picked up on that. It was a pretty interesting step, no doubt, from the outside. But inside, it went a little something like this. In Chipotle, marketing at the time, I had a position that doesn't exist anymore. And it was essentially a community liaison, a local store marketer. And my job was to help open up restaurants and help make sure that in the communities that we operated, people knew all the good stuff that we were doing. So it was really a grassroots marketing style role, which is pretty cool. It's not something that really other companies, certainly fast food companies were doing at the time. And I really was able to make a name for myself working with local farmers, bringing them into the restaurants, doing these more sustainability-related connections, connecting the restaurants to like-minded organizations. And so when they posted the position to start the sustainability department, leaders at the time reached out and said, hey, we know that this is something you're passionate about. Would you consider applying? And I was lucky enough to uh, be considered. So I applied. I had heard stories at the time that a thousand people roughly had applied to. So it took about six months. Yeah. And I just chipped away at it. I thought, okay, what I lack maybe in the technical training and background, I make up for in passion and drive and knowledge of the brand. I think to the credit of the leadership team for hiring someone internally who they had faith in could get that technical skill needed. And I think that that is one of the most amazing things when I look back at my career, that leap of faith on both sides is really what opened the door to the path that I'm on today. I moved my life out to Denver from Boston at the time, and I did the schooling. First, I got a certificate from DU, and then I had the opportunity to get my master's from Cambridge in sustainability leadership. And now here I am. I just started my 13th year at Chipotle, the ninth year in this department, and we've grown together, which is a pretty unique story. I have to probe further because at the time, you're at this amazing organization. And 
here's this opportunity to create a department from scratch end to end. So <laughs> if we rewind to those early days, where do you even start? Like, do you create a manifesto? Do you look to bring on team members? Like, what do those first initial stages look like in creating the department? <laughs> you know, it's funny you asked that. In in my mind, it looked a little bit like Beautiful Mind with like the chalkboard and all the scribbles on the wall. And, you know, I think that there was this moment where it was like, okay, we're doing this and I'm moving out there and I'm going to dive in. And that's what I did. I took a few months really to understand exactly where you're at. And the interesting thing was I actually just had a chance to go back through and read that original job description and what I was hired to do. And I give my, what was that, maybe 26-year-old self-credit that I think that on one hand, I saw what needed to be done or what they thought needed to be done. And on the other hand, I think I saw the potential of what the role could be. And at the time, it was focused a lot on compost. And I listened to a lot of the reasoning why and I understood. But then the question was asked, is composting the most sustainable thing that we should be doing? Or is there a hierarchy we need to be creating around waste? And those sort of questions led to fleshing out a waste program. So we had a program around waste that was built from this idea of composting, leading to recycling, leading to packaging, leading to the services that we used. All these things are interconnected. And then from there, it moved into energy. So if we're dealing with waste, shouldn't we be talking about the other areas of, of sustainability? And gradually, you know, it went into environmental sustainability as a whole, understanding how these things all work together. And, and you just chipped away at it, right? I was able to prove myself in the waste category, start the energy category, category, do some really incredible things there that I'm really proud of with a great group of people continuing to lead out. And then the environmental bucket led into other areas. Okay, well, if we're looking at environmental sustainability, we surely need to connect the dots to the social sustainability side, the food and animal side of things. There are all of these areas that Chipotle at its core always believed in, but we needed to make sure that we were connecting the dots internally to externally, talking about it in a way that really reflected what was industry-leading practices at the time and continues to be, right? So it was an evolution, no doubt. It wasn't like I stepped in day one into the program we have today. We really grew together, the program. And I think for, for anyone that's listening, I have to tip my hat to Chipotle and what you've done to charter what seems to be one of the most comprehensive and system-wide programs around sustainability. Your colleague sent over what amounts to roughly 116-page sustainability report. And in the report, it goes deep into all of the different ways that Chipotle is thinking about waste, sustainability, packaging, like you said, farming, food. So I'd love to Fast forward to today, and now that you've grown the department to what it is and all it's accomplished, I'd love to kind of pinpoint a couple of the programs that you're particularly proud of, some that are highest impact. And I'd like to start with one that is really interesting to me. It's a public goal of diverting 50% of waste from landfill by 2020, which is next year, just sure crazy. So Days away. <laughs> can you talk through why that goal and 
how do you think the company, which now has over 2,500 stores, is going to be able to achieve this? Yeah, it's a great question. First, thank you for those kind words. I'm exceedingly proud of the ethos that we have here and the culture that we have here. And it leads so genuinely, right? This idea of sustainability is so core and precious to who we are that everyone takes what I feel like is the right approach here, which is a genuine approach. There is no push for greenwashing. There's no, we need to do this because it's the trendy thing to do. It is a very data-driven approach to sustainability with an eye towards things like consumer trends, no doubt. But we do what is most impactful for us based on our actual impact and our belief system. And I think that that is why it is industry leading. And we aren't following a trend set. I, I think the, the second that you do that, you become a follower and not necessarily a leader. So to connect the dots to waste, the reason why that is really important is that we are a restaurant company. And I think when you think about the impact that we have, certainly there's the, the food and animals component of it. But waste is one of the biggest areas that our 2,500 plus locations have on the communities that we operate in. And it is not necessarily this sexy thing when you think about sustainability trash, but it's one of the most important areas that brands can focus on improving their impact. And so this goal was not set super far out into the, the distance with sort of a blank number in mind. This was a really strategic approach to keep half of our waste out of the landfill. Um, and I think we've done it in almost a subtle way, right? I, I don't think we're out there blasting this. Uh, you, you read the report, you know that it's in there. We are chipping away day after day to try and achieve this goal by the end of next year. And I'm excited to, to say that I am confident we will achieve it. We're close now. There's a few really exciting things coming up that's going to help us get there. But this waste goal, it's one sentence. But when you think about all of the programs and the projects and the areas of our business that it touches, you can hear the excitement in my voice, I bet. I mean, it is, it's, so, it's so incredible how one goal could have such an impact throughout the entire business from packaging to the food we buy and purchase, how we prepare it at the restaurant, to the services we offer for that waste removal, to the innovation. So one of the programs that piqued my interest was this gloves to bags program. What is gloves to bags and how is it helping Chipotle get closer to that goal of yours? So the Chipotle glove to bag program is a really great example of how we use innovation to solve really tangible problems in the industry. And this is, so I don't know if you remember, let's go back maybe a year or so, maybe a little before that. There's that photo of the turtle with a plastic straw in its nose. It spun this really great movement to, to get away from single-use plastic, right? Consumers reacted. Everyone wanted to move away from a straw. And that is good, right? We think of the idea of how something in nature can impact how we operate every day, change habits. That's pretty cool. And there, of course, was discussion here of, you know, we got the inquiries, like, what are you doing about the straw? And we were doing really great things about it, right? We are piloting uh, a sustainable alternative, both in PLA and in paper. We're testing a strawless lid. There are things that we're doing. But the, the data nerd in me couldn't help but remember, we do waste audits every year, multiple times a year, where we're literally in the dumpster sorting the waste down to the in individual items. So whether it's forks or 
burrito foil or I mean, really detailed waste audits. And I remember thinking, gosh, why is this a big deal? And I knew it was because of the photo, but our straws make up less than 1% of our overall waste. But film plastic in general makes up about 9%, 8 or 9% of our waste. And plastic loves being the biggest chunk of that. And that's because plastic gloves, we have to use them. This is a function of operation in the restaurants. We're not alone. There are a lot of plastic gloves being used every year. And recycling system, it just isn't set up to take this type of film plastic. It's why at the grocery store, the plastic bags, those aren't recyclable, generally speaking. It clogs up the recycling system, which is built for plastic bottles. And so we hit the wall there. That's when you're thinking about trying to hit that 50% number, a chunk of eight or 9% is like, yes, how can we tackle this? And everyone just kept saying, well, we can't do it. We can't do it. And so I personally am pretty passionate about this idea of a circular economy. I think it's one that in the sustainability world and business in general, we're going to have to start shifting towards. And so I really had another one of those beautiful mind moments where I took the output. So what is this plastic of glove made of. And I looked back at the inputs in the restaurant. So what are we purchasing that's made of this? And the line was drawn. There was this waste bag that we purchased, this trash bag from this company that used the same material. And this is a credit to our suppliers because when I asked the question to these suppliers and I said, hey, any chance you'd be open to innovating a closed loop that's never happened before or a circular economy moment that's never happened in the history of time? Would you be open to it? They don't look at me like I'm crazy. They might have left the room and said I was crazy, but they jumped on board. So a, a lot of credit there to Revolution Bags and Revolution Plastic to say, yeah, let's try it. And so that's what we did. It doesn't have to be the most complicated thing. You can just look at inputs and outputs and try and connect the dots. So we piloted it in Portland, expanded to Sacramento, and we'll hopefully expand again soon. We are working now on the logistics component of it, but it's one of those incredible stories of just asking a simple question and not stopping when the answer is no. We've got to figure out because the answer is going to be no more than it's not in this world a lot of times. So how do we innovate around that? So that's the glove to bag story. Wow. So another subcategory of this waste problem is food. And food waste has been an issue area that we've explored quite a few times over the course of the last season or two. So within the context of Chipotle, I'm interested, how is your team thinking about food waste and how do you plan on addressing it across the company's footprint? Sure. Great question. And I want to acknowledge there's two types of food waste. There's the edible food waste, and then there is food waste that can't be consumed by humans. We're talking about avocado pits and shells, things that are still food waste, (laughs) but aren't meant for consumption. And we're tackling it in both of those areas with a very clear plan, which is exciting. And even before we tackle that, I want to say that there is an eye throughout our entire supply chain on waste. And I think that's a really important thing to say is that So much of our strategy is about preventing waste, not what we do with the waste when we have it. And I think that that is a very important distinction that I know the most successful programs out there are focused on. There's a lot of attention being given to edible food waste and food donation, which is great. But I challenge operators, before we even get there, what are we doing to to mitigate waste throughout the supply chain? What's unique about Chipotle's potential food waste is that we have whole ingredients coming into our restaurant in a way that the majority of fast food restaurants don't. So we have 
whole heads of romaine lettuce. We have bell peppers. We have red onions coming in, whole avocados. This creates more inedible food waste or kitchen scraps than the average fast food restaurant, or in some cases, the average restaurant. We're doing a lot of vegetable prep each day. And the way that we've been able to train this, if you think about a bell pepper, you know, at home, maybe you just whack off the top and cut it just for what you need for your salad, right? But when you're cutting cases of bell peppers every day, using that top and bottom of the pepper is essential to reducing the amount of waste that that goes into it. So it goes into um, hopefully the compost, which we have at uh, quite a few of our restaurants, but in case they don't in the landfill. So there's an eye towards prep. And what a lot of customers care about is the edible food waste. So we've partnered with a food donation connection. Each and every restaurant has the opportunity to donate their food at the end of the night. The good news is because we cook in batch, right? We cook in small batches throughout the day, pretty much as needed, right? So we're not cooking massive vats of barbacoa or steak or chicken at a restaurant ahead of time, or, you know, we're cooking to order pretty much. So we have a very minimal waste compared to the average restaurant. But what we do have, we can partner with a food donation connection and our restaurants are encouraged to do so quite often and find a home for that food in the communities that they operate. So one of the other issue areas that we've talked about a little bit, but I'd love to explore just a bit further is packaging at large. Yep. And in the report, uh, I can see that there's all different types of packaging. There's cardboard. There's the actual single-use containers that consumers use. So the first question I'd love to explore here is just broadly speaking, how is your team thinking about packaging? And what are some of the innovative ways that your team has been able to address it and will intend to address it over the next couple of years? Sure. Another good question. It's like you do this for a living. Um, (laughs) So yeah, this is another common question in this space around packaging. And I think it's important to acknowledge single-use packaging is sort of the elephant in the sustainability room around QSR or fast food. And I think we need to meet it head on. Yes, there is a need for single-use packaging. And yes, single-use packaging is not necessarily as sustainable as reusable. But what can we do knowing that there's that need and that demand to make it as sustainable as possible? So are we thinking about packaging? Gosh, constantly, every day. How are we thinking about it? I think we think about it in three specific ways. It's where does that packaging come from, aka how is it made? What are the raw materials? You know, all the details that go into it. How is it used at the restaurant? Does it perform well? Do customers like it? Does it present the food well? You know, all the things that you need to know. And then what can happen to it or what happens to it once it leaves the restaurant? So when we think about packaging, we're looking at those three key areas and we're trying to check all of those boxes every time. So we're trying to make sure that sustainably it comes from renewable resources wherever possible. It comes from suppliers who share the same passion for ethical business as we have. Then we look, do customers have to take two or three of the same item because it's not performing well? Do customers not want to eat our food because it's not performing well? Or the opposite, 
because they know it's a more sustainable product or they're visiting more often. So we look at that customer interaction. And then finally, once it leaves our restaurant, where can it go? Can it be composted? Can it be recycled? What are the opportunities to get it out of the landfill? So we work really closely with our supply chain team. We feel like, to me, those are, when I look at my agenda for the day um, and I look at my calendar and I see I have something with packaging on it, my heart flutters a little. I get really excited because it really is the front line of what we're doing on sustainability. Food is a massive part of that. But from the customer standpoint, I think the industry puts so much emphasis on the food, which is so important, right? And our food with integrity is such a key of who we are and what we do. But my feeling is the packaging with integrity program has to be just as strong. If, if you are all, if, if everyone knew the amount of work that went into that single ingredient in their bowl, like that jalapeno that was grown for their bowl and the amount of work that went into it, we would serve it on gold if we could, right? But this idea of packaging with integrity, I think is something that the company has embraced for many years. And we've been on the front line of trying to minimize the impact of single-use packaging and develop new markets for more sustainable alternatives, which is pretty exciting. I'd love to to peel a layer off the onion on the, on this last part, because what I've heard from previous guests who I consider to be experts in the field, we had the co-founder of Big by Melissa, we had just salad, and they all are thinking about the problem and the opportunity in different ways. There's a camp that believes strongly that materials innovation is the holy grail. You know that we have to develop a material that, for example, dissolves completely when submerged in water, right? And we're seeing some cool things there, like carrot-based plastic bags and things of that nature. And then you have the just salad closed loop system that they've helped pioneer with the reusable bowl. So in in your mind, I guess, like you just said, you you guys are thinking about kind of sustainable alternatives. What does that mean? Kind of what, what are some, some cool things if we were to lift up the hood? What do those things look like? This combination that is going to be needed is massive to answer that question. So I can say we have feet in both of those camps. And while materials innovation is really front and center in a lot of ways with the type of packaging we're doing, know that we're also testing reusables. With 80,000 plus employees, we have a massive opportunity internally to offer reusables to our crew members so that they don't they can help us cultivate a better world through their own daily actions. So right now we have a really cool pilot going on with these incredible pressed bamboo reusable bowls in the back of house for our employees and reusable cups for them to use. And I want to take pause and, and talk about scale there again, because yes, the the sort of holy grail of reusables is that everything in the front of house would be reusable. And we are discussing what that could look like. And there is some discussion around that for sure. But back of house is really a massive opportunity to reduce our impact as well. Again, 2,500 locations plus with crew members every day, 
there's something like, it's like the equivalent of 81 Olympic sized pools worth of cups that we could divert through a, that type of program. And there's some really cool statistics um, around back of house. So I, it's going to take both for us. I think both of those areas, material innovation and reusables are going to be part of the solution. I don't think it can be just one or the other. I think it's going to be a multi-pronged approach for Chipotle and probably many of the other larger brands out there. I think the larger you go, the more you probably have to lean towards material innovation and and maybe the smaller chains or or individual independent restaurants could be able to incorporate reusables in a way that that larger chains cannot. So I think it's going to be a combination of both and neither is more important than the other. The important thing is that we're thinking about both. So the kind of the last cornerstone of uh, what I'll call the sustainability map is What's actually quite an interesting trend in the culture, the community, it's regenerative agriculture versus lab-grown protein. And I think I think where I stand on this is, like you've said before, they both are important for different reasons. But I'd love to kind of hear your take given, again, the scale at which you're operating. Is regenerative agriculture, is that the future? And is that where we should be investing our attention and energy? Or is it lab-grown proteins like, you know, Impossible and Memphis Meats and Just and all these kind of really cool companies coming out of the valley? What's your What's your take here? Yeah. I, I, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think to compare one to the other is a bit of apples and oranges. And I think regenerative agriculture from Chipotle's perspective ticks so many boxes in terms of, you know, our our food ethos. And it's about taking care of the land and the animals and plants on that land and the farmer itself. And all of those things make a lot of sense. You know, Caitlin Liebert, the sustainability practitioner, also recognizes that what I like about the lab-grown protein movement is that it's really targeted at meat eaters in general. You, you would The majority of the people trying this, when you look at the statistics, are meat eaters. And I think that that is a really cool space to play. And I think that's really exciting. And I think they are not, one will not replace the other. We're going to need to shift fundamentally to a more you know, regenerative type model to, um, at the very least, mitigate climate risk, which mitigates um, the, the cost of food for, for one, right? So, I mean, if we think about a risk standpoint alone, regenerative or sustainable agriculture, moving towards that is really important for the industry. And, and Chipotle, you know, firmly uh, believes that. But there is absolutely space to play. And I applaud any sort of effort in, in how we shape consumption more sustainably. Fascinating. And Aaron actually just sent me an awesome announcement your team made yesterday about the future of farming. And I actually first learned about this problem in the Square Roots episode. Tobias told us and taught our listeners that the average age of the farmer is 58 years old. So can you just speak a little bit about what the future of farming announcement is and what the implications of that initiative entails. Absolutely. I get to work on a lot of really, really exciting projects. And I think 
this project has has been one of the most exciting of my career. This idea that we can help support this next generation of farmers is integral to the future of food. And the statistics don't lie. Like you said, I think anyone who hears that statistics like, oh, wow. I mean, when you think about just the, the, the fundamentals of that, farm work is often pretty backbreaking work, right? It's intense. And you think about the, the, the agricultural backbone of this country, and you think about 58, 59 years old, there's, there's a delta there between future need and future availability of farmers. And so what's really neat about this is that it is, to me, a, a winning opportunity. It doesn't matter what your belief system is. I think everyone can get behind supporting this next generation of farmers here in the United States. There is a real need, and we have the opportunity to help across many different areas. But one of the areas that I love as the executive director of our Cultivate Foundation is this ability to do seed grants and work with many, many farmers in the United States to get them the cash that they need to help run their operation and get their operation started up and help bring that average age down. So a clear opportunity. I'm thrilled to to be uh, working on the core team of this project. And it is just the beginning of a long-term commitment to help young farmers in the United States. And one cool opportunity coming up again is going to be, you know, without giving too much away, you know, we're going to have another accelerator program this year. It may or may not be focused around young farmers. There's some really exciting stuff coming up um, that we're tackling this, this issue, not just from a philanthropic cash standpoint, which is important, right? Let's, let's acknowledge that. That is important. That is one of the areas that's needed. But additionally, we want to move beyond just a check cutting model and into more of, of a partnership that really lifts this next generation up. Some really exciting stuff coming down coming down the pike about this one. I mean, it's, it really is amazing because if you think about one of the core problem areas and challenges of being a business person, a business owner, which is what these farmers are, is finding customers, right? Yeah. And what Chipotle offers is, again, an astounding partnership that enables people who have – even just the smallest interest in pursuing this critically important field, you know, the opportunity to do so and with confidence, right, that they're going to have a customer like yourself that, right, isn't going to be going out of business anytime soon, is going to be able to provide the direction and scaffolding to make smart decisions in those early innings. So when I saw this, yeah. I was like, oh my God, yes. I know. I, I just hearing you talk about it, right? A lot of head nodding over here, and I think that that's <laughs> the reaction we're getting across the country when people hear about this. And and again, there is so much gratitude I have, uh, and I think the brand has to to be one small part of the solution that's going to be needed. And you know, I was sitting a couple weeks ago at the uh, National Young Farmer Coalition's annual meeting and talking with young farmers across the country and the challenges that they face, and um, dialing in those last few details of this partnership based on those conversations is such a rewarding and fulfilling opportunity. And, and hearing the the challenges that they face, I can't even believe it. I mean, you know, the the ask 
it's not as simple as being handed a farm anymore, right? And you know, this idea of the next generation not being anywhere, the, the whole context of farming is different from generations prior. And the system as a whole has made it very challenging to enter farming. And so we hope that this is one step to removing barriers of, of, of either being handed a farm from a generation above or starting farming. We hope we can remove some of those obstacles. And I am really, really excited to see the, the impact that we hope will be felt uh, for decades or maybe even into perpetuity. But it's just the beginning. So I'm very excited about it. Yeah, one of the interesting narratives that I'm sure will become more and more prominent here is, uh, and I, I definitely want to pick your brain in the in our last round, but indoor farming, like what Square Roots enables is a kind of a plug and play opportunity for, again, people that have the interest in pursuing opportunities in this field. You know, being able to click a button and optimize an environment for a given type of produce produce or or group of different um, produce is really amazing because not only does it uh, completely change the learning curve, but it also changes and condenses the timeline from learning how to start to starting. So it's kind of a, a I'm interested to see how that type of farming, you know, Absolutely. indoor farming yeah. starts to integrate at the scale like Chipotle and these programs that you're spearheading. Um, Definitely. And again, it's going to take all sorts, right? And I think what's cool about that technology is so many younger, this younger generation is really passionate about technology as well. So I think there's a really cool overlap between, you know, the the opportunity, what what farming looked like generations ago is not necessarily what it'll look like in 10 Uh years. Yeah, exactly. Or tomorrow, to your point. Yeah. So, Caitlin, I'd love to zoom out for a second. Over the last few months, I get the question pretty often, what can I do to have you know, disproportional or outsized impact? What behavior can I change in my day-to-day? So I'd love to segment this into two parts. If I were a restaurant operator and I were to look at you know, the laundry list of opportunity areas at my organization – you know, in your mind and in your role as a leader in sustainability, what's kind of the number one impact area you think other food operators or chains should be prioritizing? Yeah, I would say definitely start within their own supply. That our value chains, our supply chains and value chains are the heartbeat of our operations as, as restaurant operators. And taking ownership, meaning know where your supply comes from, whether it's food or packaging or whatever it is, and work towards making that more sustainable. And as restaurant operators, we have such a a massive opportunity to invest in more sustainable things, right? Food, materials, distribution. It's its just a major opportunity. So that would be my advice to restaurant operators. Check your supply. And now if I flip the script to the consumer, if someone that has eco-anxiety or is hearing and seeing all of these headlines and instead of being paralyzed, they're thinking to themselves, how can, what behavior should I change in my day to day to have outsized impact? 
or how can I contribute to the change? What's your recommendation here? What's your go-to? Yeah, my biggest answer to that is vote with your fork. And my answer after that is vote with your dollar. So every single day as consumers, we are sending a signal to the world, to the economy, that this is good with a capital G when we invest in it, right? And we are micro-investing all throughout the day by purchasing. And so knowing it's the exact flip side of the advice to the operator, which is as a consumer, try and take more responsibility or try and take some responsibility of understanding the the values of the companies that you're supporting. Uh, Know that it is such a powerful tool to vote with your fork or vote with your dollar. And finally, if that alone is too overwhelming, pick one area. So instead of trying to solve the world overnight, maybe it's start with where am I eating or what type of food am I buying from the grocery store? And then you can move on to where am I eating out? And then you can move on to other areas, right? So start with one idea. And for me, that's always where am I investing my money? And not in the stock exchange sense, But literally every day as consumers, when you spend money, you are investing in whatever that company believes in. And so be aware as a step one of what you're supporting through your dollar or your fork. Caitlin, that is perfect. I'm going to be recycling that advice. So I'll make sure to trademark or I'll I'll give you a credit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can't say I'm the first one to come up with it, but good. I'm glad you'll be using it. So the last part of the interview is a new game that has been quite the hit over the last few weeks. It's called Bullish or Bearish. (laughs) And how it works is I'll name a trend and you give your bullish or bearish take in 60 seconds or less. You ready to go? Okay. I'm not great with a timer, (laughs) but here we go. So the first trend, (laughs) and we talked about a little bit, but plant-based meat. Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to say bullish on this personally, because I know that it is something that is working to shift people's awareness towards, towards alternatives to meat, right? So it's getting people aware of it. So I think one area I'd love to be a little more bullish on is let's just, again, if we could cut down on the sort of additives or the this sort of I'm a little more bearish on the individual ingredients but the, the general ethos of shifting to a more plant-based diet in general whether that's meat or or not is I'm pretty bullish on for sure second trend is indoor farming yeah again I'm gonna go bullish here I think it's gonna take a multitude of solutions I think indoor farming is a really innovative way it, it kind of says climate, what climate? We can create our own climate, which is pretty cool. I think it's it's really innovative. Do I think it's the only solution? No, but I think that it is going to be uh, hopefully uh, an area that we see continued growth in. So the third one, and it's kind of similar to the first one, but veganism as a diet choice. Again, 
I, I hate to be a broken record, but I'm going bullish on this. I think anytime, I think there's diets and diet trends are always going to be really popular. And I'm going to always throw a stamp of approval on ones that tend to be with an eye towards more sustainable eating. So this is one that if you look at just sort of consumption and impact alone, you know, it, it tends to be a bit more of a sustainable diet. I don't want to say that hundred percent of the time, right? There's there's caveats everywhere. But yeah, let's let's hope that that the vegans continue to be out there and are probably gonna be vocal about it. So the last and it's the one that we've had the most kind of flip-flopping over the course of the last couple of weeks. Online grocery. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Me personally, I think that food and the connection we have to food has changed so much over time. My dissertation was on local food systems and how grocery stores can enhance them. So on one hand, I think there's a real opportunity to help people get the food that they need. So access aside, um, I'm going to be a little more bearish on it because I think that the further we step away from from where our food is raised and grown, the greater the disconnect is. And so if all we have to do is open our door and everything's right there, maybe that's one step even further away from the connection, which is so vital to how our food is raised and grown. Love it. Caitlin, you handled the round with ease, like an expert. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Before we part ways, I'd love to roll the red carpet. Is there any final call to actions, announcements you'd like to make. The floor is yours. No, I I just, to anyone out there listening, kudos to you for even listening to a podcast that's focused on this stuff, right? I think everyone's just doing great. It's sort of a tough climate out there. It's a tough world. We got this. Do what you can. We're going to get there. And, And remember that that what you do every day is the biggest opportunity for change. So it's maybe not going to come from some insane technology, but really how you interact day to day. Just be a little bit more mindful. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at InGoodHands. Also, Special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday. <laughs>